so you're talking about being caught up on American guys and you have to wait for a new episode to come out when at least the first 15 to 20 years of you watching TV, that's exactly how it was. Yeah. So you're you're just mad because it's it's normal, but yeah. you just forgot that it was normal. Yeah, I mean it's that Netflixification of yeah. America, son. They they spoiled me, son. They Netflix and chilled my ass, and now I'm sitting here just I need to have it all in a week. I need to be able to binge the whole show in a week. Like, what the hell is a rerun? Like, don't don't tell me the show was coming back in two weeks. I don't want to wait two weeks and watch this old rerun. Give me a new episode now. That's what they did. Netflix and Shonda. Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> with, them, with them Grey's Anatomies and them scandals. I want scandal next week. Don't tell me it's coming back on January 25th and it's November 11th. I want it now. Yo, it's, if you look at the TV schedule and like look at the the postseason of sports, they, there's a lot of coinciding because these things are big rating draws and they're putting all their efforts in one place or another. So for one, that is weird that they do it like that. But yo, I think the thing that I just noticed is that premium networks don't have commercials. So it feels just like Netflix because you're watching things all the way through. I think if premium networks had like real commercial breaks in their shows, you wouldn't even be mad if it was coming out week for week because it would seem a little bit more normal. You know, just like think about if it dropped on Hulu. Hulu, if you got regular Hulu, even in the Disney bundle, that shit still got commercials, which my girl <laughs> hates. It's like, how, why? She's like, why the hell am I paying to watch commercials? And I'm like, hey, that's you gotta understand the gig. They, they've been on this shit for a minute. <laughs> that's some pimp logic if you ever thought about it. So I'm gonna make you pay me to show you commercials. Absolutely, <laughs> it's it's this shit is is, is deep. You know, I tried to explain to it, it's like, hey, it's because you got to come back every week. Like Hulu is built on you coming back because the new SVU came out and you ain't watching on linear television. So you had to wait a week and come back and watch a new one. And so they know you're going to come back so they know they can show you ads. You know what I'm saying? So, That's what it is. So when we watching the show like, like American Gods, you definitely want all of them at once, but it's a slow drip. That's just how things are supposed to go. You just spoil can you imagine Title. if TV went back to the way we grew up on them? If you remember when people we would freak out, yo, like they they wouldn't they wouldn't I remember would. it. You can recall it, but you don't remember how it feels for the new season of Family Matters to start in September, for them to run episodes every week and then take that break and then don't don't come back until like two months and then. CL, like you said, depending on what's going on sports-wise, even when a show would come back in January, you might have you might get that first episode in mid-January, and then it take a couple weeks break and come back in February. Yep. And then you get March Madness, and it takes another break, and then comes right back to finish the season. If TV went back to that, man, people would lose their everlasting mind. You know what? People would lose their minds, but I feel like the, the product would get better. You know, and it would turn TV back to appointment watching. Cause you remember Thursdays back when the Cosby show was coming on. That was a family event, bruh. Everybody crowd around, oh, it was eight o'clock or whatever, whatever time that joint was coming on. It was everybody gathered yep. around that TV. I know that, that was that was a family event up in my house. <laughs> every every week we crowding around to watch that joint. But now it's like they done they're like the equivalent of a volume shooter in the NBA. Just jack up as many shots as they can and 
something going to go in. And that's how they put in these TV shows out there. Let's just record a whole season, you know, throw up, see what happens and just record as many of them as they can. Just keep cranking them out. So the quantity is growing, but the quality is like going to shit when you really think about it. You'll get like a couple of big hits, like some killers on these on these series, like the first season of Power and stuff like that. But then for every one of those, you'll get like 10 shows that ain't shit. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. Welcome to the Madcap Movie Review Podcast. I'm Sean. I'm CL. I'm Derek. And today we'll be reviewing Judas and the Black Messiah. Offered a plea deal by the FBI, William O'Neill infiltrates the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party to gather intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton. Judas and the Black Messiah is a 2021 American biographical drama about the betrayal of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in late 1960s Chicago. The movie is directed and produced by Shaka King, who wrote the screenplay along with Will Burson based on a story by King, Burson, and the Lucas brothers, Kenny and Keith. The film stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stansfield, Dominique Fishback, Jesse Plemons, and Martin Sheen. For his performance in the film, Kalua was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes and the Screen Actor Guild Awards. All right, so before we jump into our review, 
What's your first impressions on Judas and the Black Messiah, Derek? I thought this was an excellent movie. I mean, I'll just put that out there. I'm going to leave with that. I thought it was an excellent movie. And it succeeded in doing what all those, the movies of this type do for me, was they make me mad as hell at white people and <laughs> and sometimes black people. So this one achieved both. It made me mad as hell at black people and white people. And it, it revealed some things that I did just flat out didn't know, you know, just little tiny things that I didn't know, like the depth of which he was able to bring people together. He had rednecks coming together with with Mexicans and 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 then black black revolutionary. That that whole thing was amazing. Like I knew he was a unifying force, but to see that he was he had that much of a reach and how much of a, a linchpin he was in that whole movement, the way that they portrayed that, great, great film all around, bro. The fact that a Fred Hampton movie got made is an accomplishment in itself because if you knew anything about Fred Hampton, you probably would think that that would never actually happen because then there would be a lot of things that would have to get acknowledged in service of the fact that we're making a movie out of it and we got to talk about the fact that the FBI was pretty much behind him being assassinated. And so that's part of the reason why we always felt like, you know, like the FBI probably had a big interest on there never being a Fred Hampton movie. Like as crazy as that sounds, but after you watch this movie, you're not going to feel like that's that crazy. This movie is truly like a depiction of like what Fred Hampton was and was about. Like there was a few artistic things put in to just, of course, move the story along and make a great movie. But like this was true to him at at from all angles. And so, like, I I really love this movie for that. Man, it's, it was just tremendous to see a film about Fred Hampton, period. And see, God, I hate to say it like this, but damn, the white man has been after us for a long time. Yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah. sometimes, more than people know it, we've helped the white man get us. and. I think that was important to see. I definitely fuck, agree with that. Fuck Bill O'Neill. Use the hoe. But Man, that nigga a, fuck himself. I think it took too long for him to do what he did. It took yeah, too long. It took too long. Like it even in way too long. Like even in that interview that he did for that documentary, the fact that he would speak like I was a part of the struggle. You know, I played a part. Nah, bro. You was a tool. You was a tool by the white man to take down our leaders. They took out Fred Hampton. They took out Malcolm X with the help of black men. It's just wild, man. was 21 years old. 21. I don't think people have grasped that. This movie starts depicting Fred Hampton as a 20-year-old, and then he is murdered in his sleep at the age of 21. Like most two-hour biopics, we see the span of somebody's life among decades. We got a year out of this cat. Part of which, he spent in jail for some bullshit. Said he stole ice cream. My man stole ice cream. That had me. When they, when they was like, what's the charge? It took $70 worth of ice cream. And I was like, come on, two to five? Come on. Wild. Let, let's talk about one of the major white figures in the movie. Now... I think Martin Sheen did a hell of a job playing a fucked up individual, but J. Edgar Hoover, fuck that guy. 
what did this movie tell you all about J. Edgar Hoover that you might not have known? Just based on the history that I learned, it didn't, it was what I expected. Mm-hmm. I, I can honestly say that. it's probably a shame that I could say that, but it is what it's about what I expected. It fell right in line, you know, portrayed it accurate to how I would have thought it out in my head. The the part that really caught me was um the controller that um the guy who was Will O'Neill's controller, his handler, Roy Mitchell, the FBI, the agent, the way they portrayed him, by the way, excellently cast part right there. The way they portrayed him, he walked the hell of a line. That dude walked the hell of a line. He seemed like he could really talk a brick wall in the Kremlin because he seemed like he was really mind fucking this cat. Like, yo, you see what they doing, man? They just like the the opposite version of the, of the KKK, man. Like, you're doing the right thing. And he seemed like he actually left Will O'Neill conflicted. At certain parts of the movie, he he seemed conflicted. And it just made me wonder, was he really feeling that kind of inner conflict in real life when he was doing all this? Was he wondering, like, I'm, was he sitting there thinking, like, I'm doing the right thing? The same way he said in that interview, you know, in 82 or whatever. So the way they portrayed those two white guys veering away from Edgar Hoover, I thought it was a good job. I think for for me, it's like it wasn't anything new because I knew what they were trying to do. But I, I don't think I've never really seen it portrayed um, to the point where they had to explain it to an agent, like why this was important, you know, because it's like we know what we mean. But here is why it's like, do you want your daughter dating a Negro? You don't want these people to be next to you, do you? And he just made it seem like such a dire thing. And he's like, he and he didn't even understand. You know, Mitchell didn't understand what he was getting at at first. But he made it clear. It's like, we have a standard here. The white man is on top, and these black folks are the bottom feeders. So you cannot have them being equal. I mean, you, your status will change. And that's a thing that's been, that has carried on into present day. You know, nothing is new, which is the crazy part about it. But yeah, like just to see like the way the messaging came down, um, that that part I had never really experienced until this movie. This portrayal of J. Edgar Hoover was important because the history that we've been taught has largely been J. Edgar Hoover, this revolutionary person, this architect. He's the founder of the FBI. To this present day, his name is on the FBI's building. But we don't often talk about like this dude, this dude was a communist, like purposely taking down not only black folk, but other people just for the hell of it, for his views. This dude has been portrayed in numerous films over 20 but i can only think of this film and dylan baker's performance in selma that actually depicted this dude's negative side so i think it was important to get that that history back and yo man we we need to look at the shit that j edgar hoover did this dude did some dirty shit to the people and this is some, not only do we need to get our faces on the screen, but we need to talk about these white people who out here doing some fucked up shit, but getting put on a pedestal for history. Like, you know who makes the history books? 
Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, and they, and and you know who's giving you the public school education? So it's it doesn't look great on anything. And that's the thing about history books. It's like you can just pick and choose the parts that you want, and then you teach people about that. And that's what people know. So that's why it's been so crazy that you know they the internet is here. Yeah. Cause like now we can start cataloging everything. And you know, now this stuff can't be forgotten. Like a lot of this stuff is in ink now. Um, it's been archived on YouTube, you know, you got the wikis. You know, people that wrote more books, you know, you got self-published stuff. Like it's so easy to get some of this knowledge now. But but before it's like they they didn't want this stuff to be out there because think like think about especially like with Fred Hampton's story, like how easy it would be to undermine the FBI at every corner. Mm-hmm. And to think about the way that the FBI is portrayed in every movie and TV show as these super cops that, you know, got these advanced combat techniques and, you know, doing all this stuff. I was like, nah, they're just like, you know, they're, they're paying people to like undermine movements. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what they do. They're just conniving and sneaky. I'm, I'm trying not to get too revolutionary out here. But I'm trying to <laughs> no, hold man. it back a little bit. No, don't hold it back. That's what they want us to do. They want us to. <laughs> you know? That's how they Mess keep around, us down. Get that knock in the door. Get that knock in the door. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, man, this, this, type, this type of shit, it, it do get me charged up a little bit, bro. Because I do have a, you know, a little, like, revolutionary side that I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I kind of keep suppressed just because I, I know... I know what's the long game. One thing that I liked about this movie is that it didn't feel like a biopic. Like last week we watched a crime thriller, the little things. I don't know about y'all, but I, I feel like this this might be the one biopic that I've watched that kind of felt like a crime thriller. Uh, I don't know if I called it a crime, I guess. I mean, because the thriller is just meant to like kind of keep you on edge. Yeah. Right, doesn't really scare you per se. Okay, then I could get that because I was thinking thriller, horror, same thing. Because you know, because you know what it set, what it set up. Ah, you know how it set up for me to feel that way. Like how we start, how we meet Bill O'Neill mm-hmm. playing this cop to steal the car. That was real dumb, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna say that. That's the part that would get me sitting there thinking, like, okay, I could agree it's a thriller. Because the part when Judy's like on him and she got the gun on him in the car, and she starts, yeah, how'd you get the car? Oh, where? Oh, and the other boy's like, yo, how wired that joint right now? You how wired it? Okay, how wired it right now? And they're so close to catching him. Yeah, and it made me start thinking, like, in real life, if they had actually just really put two and two together. What would have happened? Because they would have sniffed out the rat right there, early. right there, and it would have changed everything. Because a moment like that probably happened at some point. Because that dude, he he probably wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He wasn't no professional trained professional at infiltrating. Absolutely and, not. Exactly. He probably ran his mouth, so some of this stuff might be out there that definitely happened. <laughs> So that's that's really what it did to me. I was sitting there like, damn, because you already know how it plays out. So I'm really sitting there like, yo, what if they would have caught his ass early? Like they were so close to getting him. And when money asked him the question, it was like, why you have why do you have the keys to a hot car? How the hell did you get the keys? Don't tell me that your man switched out the locks. If I got to start asking you these questions, the second I got to start thinking in my head that I got to question you, even if you have great answers, I will never trust you ever. 
And I, if they operated on that code, so much would have been different. So it was that, it was how we met him, that moment, even the scenes where he was getting interrogated at the police station and those meetings in the restaurant. Like even those meetings in the restaurant with Mitchell, like that was, that had a real gangster vibe to it. And you know that mess couldn't have happened today. No. He <laughs> <laughs> was running in and out the restaurant with this, with this officer, this agent. Somebody would have had, they would have caught him in a picture somewhere. They, the, the Panthers would have had some, some super science dude who a computer tech guy that can just hit up all the facial recognition software, but like, hey, we pinged your phone over here. Somebody spotted you in the reflection of a, of a, you know, napkin dispenser in this restaurant talking to this other guy. He'd have gotten bagged, you know, so none of this stuff could actually happen right now. Hey, you know what? It's funny you say that. The thing, the one thing that the Panthers never did was counterintelligence. And if they did, they would have had to follow everybody home and where they went to make sure they was who they said they was and they wouldn't do with nothing. But mm. they were never proactive on counterintelligence. And I'm not really sure how you start up a counterintelligence department. Of course, I'm not an expert. But I think they may well have wanted to explore that in hindsight. All they had to do was call the Nation of Islam. It was the 60s. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I was about to say. That's how you start it up. You get burned. And when you get burned one time, that's when you start learning. Like, okay, we just got burned from this. We don't want that to happen again. How did it happen? Okay, let's reverse engineer that. Let's now we can start going and making sure that we don't put safeguards in place so this thing doesn't happen. Then you keep getting burned by other things. And every time you get burned, you scaffold and you, you put something on top of that and you put more safeguards in. But that's how you actually build out counterintelligence. I think the fact that they didn't do it was because of our nature as Black people to begin with. Naturally, we are very trusting. It's why so many of us is over here in the first damn place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's that you say? You holding that gun, but you say you're not gonna kill me? Oh, you just gonna you want to go take a walk into the woods? What, just the ten of y'all and me? Okay, cool. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I make I'm oversimplifying it, make it sound stupid, but <laughs> we we are very trusting, and I think that 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 was their flaw as as a group. That was their that was their one flaw is that. Everybody, they thought that all skin folk was kin folk. And we know that now because, you know, we know what happened to so many of the groups and the people in the past. So it's easier for us to sit here and look, you know, because we've had integration. We've had all these different things happen now. So our mindsets are completely different than them. It was literally us versus them. It's easier for us to sit there and think about it now. But back then, yeah, that was just a fatal flaw right there. Too trusting. That and it seems like the energy was spent on the goal. And if we get this interference, of course, the Black Panthers were all about defending themselves. I think that that part of them to defend themselves, they would defend themselves, pick themselves up and move on. If you go back to the part in the movie with the big shootout or even when the police ran up into the headquarters and set it on fire. Yes, yes, Blue Lives Matters, folks. That's what your police used to do. We just find some help in the community, rebuild, and keep it going. So it just speaks to your point, Derek. There was no look back. It was the moment and marching towards the future. And for most of our organizations and our, our leaders who are long gone, 
that might have been a major flaw not to look back and use what happened to sustain themselves for the future. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think that's the biggest mistake that we make when we find leaders. And, and when we look at these leaders, the leaders are always the ones that are mo the most celebrated. I feel like are the fiery, you know, ones that's like, nah, we, we just gonna keep pushing forward. Ain't no looking back, no looking back. But, you know, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. So that whole will and desire to keep pushing forward no matter what is what's ultimately gonna be lead to your downfall because you don't have that counterbalance that's gonna say, no, wait a minute now. We just got our asses kicked. Let's turn, let's turn around here and look back and see why. Let's see what happens so we can actually prepare and be, you know, be ready next time. And that's what keeps on happening. You know, I feel like right now, what's going on today, we're smarter about it. <laughs> you know, I, these these young cats that's coming up here now, they they seem like they got they got the right tactics, but yeah, I, I think that's what it is, man. Just pushing forward, not never looking back. Big mistake. Yo, big shout out to Dominique, Dominique Fishback. Fishback. Oh my god. Big yo. shout, big shout out yo. to Dominique Fishback for her portrayal of Deborah Johnson. Honestly, her performance was my favorite in the movie. Like I I, I expected Daniel Kalua to be Daniel Kalua. Same with Lakeith. It had to snap in my mind, yo. This is my girl from uh, Project Power. Just yeah, it tells yes. you how much like terrible looking braids can change how a woman looks. <laughs> because Dominique Fishback is bad. But with them braids on that she had in Project Power, <laughs> she looked like a out of her mind teeny bopper. Which like, was the point. So it was job. the point, but still, like I'm I'm just still bad at them braids. Like it was a great movie, and the braids were just super distracting. <laughs> it just as a black man. I'm sorry. We continue, Sean. <laughs> he wanted to put that out. Yeah. You know, fuck them braids and project power. Let's get back Absolutely. to let's, let's get back to Dominique Fishback in this movie. Was her hair on point in this movie? Absolutely, <laughs> I loved it. It it it, it, it fit the, the the afro. It looked like that was her real fro. You know, say it might have been a piece. You know, saying black black women do magic with hair. It was better um, than the Tyler Perry piece. Absolutely, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it was on point in this in in this movie, man. She was a great compliment to Daniel Kaluuya. I feel like uh, you believe that relationship on the screen. You you believe that connection. She was amazing, uh, amazing. I didn't even put together that she was from Project Power till you said something like, you floored me with that. I didn't even put it together because they don't seem anything like the same. Like maybe it's the braids, I don't know. Yeah, man, she she definitely has range. Like yeah. I, I look forward to seeing her in, in something a little bit more major. And, and it's like one thing I forgot to say at the beginning of the podcast, but this is, like this is one of the movies like I really want to go to a theater and go watch. I absolutely do. So like she she's big screen worthy and I, I look forward to seeing what she's in next too. Mm. I've seen her in three things, totally different each time I've seen her. Judas and the Black Messiah, Project Power, and she played Kenya in The Hate You Give. Um, I've been thoroughly impressed by everything that I've seen Dominique Fish back in. And yo, 29 years old. Got a hell of a future ahead of her, man. I hope she keeps getting opportunities. Let, let's jump into Lakeith Stanfield as Bill O'Neill. This was a major undertaking. And I not only applaud his performance in the movie, 
but I applaud him for what he revealed after the fact because yeah. I would have guessed it, but I never would have thought someone in his position would come out and actually admit. It's like, yo, after I played this first role, I need to go get therapy to get out this space. Wow. I didn't know he said that. Yeah. He said next time he might have to do therapy during just to keep it off because he tried to be so much into the character, but he felt like it probably would have helped him while he was shooting. And then like the, I guess like the drop off wouldn't have been as, as harsh. Bro had like the nervous tick down to a science. Like Lakeith Stanfield is amazing, bro. Like shout out to that dude, bro. Yeah, yeah, so, he, he played that part so well. He he really made me. I was legit hating him. Yeah, like that. that that's when you know somebody good at their part. Where you just you have trouble separating them from the character. Mm-hmm. I, I legit hated that dude for like a good five ten minutes after after the movie went off. Let me read this quote from Lakeith real quick. So this is from Complex.com. In the scene where I had to poison him, him being Fred Hampton, a lot of it didn't end up making it into the final cut, but we shot me mixing in Kool-Aid and I had to go through all of those emotions. With somebody like Daniel, who I just respect as a human and an artist, as Fred Hampton, it felt like I was actually poisoning Chairman Fred Hampton. He went on to say it took a physical toll on him and he experienced panic attacks and had other issues while filming. Said sometimes your body thinks that's real, everything that you're putting through it. So I was stressed out having panic attacks and I had to get somebody to step in. That's the like my man was living it like in every sense of the word. That that is that is on a whole nother level of experience. You know, Lakeith Stanfield doesn't get all these different parts just because, you know, he's the guy from such and such. You know, like, no, that, that dude is fire. And, like, so shout out to him to, like, actually put himself through that and then just being openly honest about the fact that, like, it's, it's like it's trauma almost to yourself. You know, just like on a broader note, you know, Black people normalize trauma all the time. And so it, it would be nothing for him to just move on and be like, man, I just got to get a hold of myself. It's like, nah, he needed some help. And I just hope more people can take a note from that. It, it made me think about why you were saying that, because I didn't know he had to go get therapy and all of that. If he felt that way, just acting out the part, like imagine what the real life uh, Will O'Neill, Will O'Neill was going through after he after he did that, after he negotiated himself into that kind of spot where he had no choice but to turn on this dude that he probably respected way more than he ever respected himself. That, that's a lot, man. That's why when I watch these cop movies and you see they undercover, like in too deep and he, and you got to turn on the cat. I'm like, I could never do that part. I, I wouldn't be able to go through it. I can't imagine, bro. I'm sorry. This is so, <laughs> this is, this is so not the space for this, but damn, we got to do it in too deep one day. <laughs> I'm down. I, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I imagine Yo, that's gonna be a lot of talk about overacting. Yeah, that and, and as soon as Derek said into deep, anytime somebody says into deep, the following scene pops in my head. Oh, you a cop? <laughs> <laughs> All I ever wanted to do was be down for you, dog. Uh-huh. You ain't a cop, Jay Reed. <laughs> that was a dope scene, son. That was a dope scene, man. Oh. Oh, 
if I made if I made a highlight reel of LL Cool J's acting career, I would end it with that scene right there. That's my favorite LL Cool J scene ever, ever. TV, movies, ever. Love that movie. But going back into this shit, yeah, big ups to Lakeith Stanfield on this role. Fuck Bill O'Neill, like we said earlier. Um, can I side note? Keith Stanfield with the mustache kind of looked like Bill O'Neill. Yeah, and it's funny that you was you went there because that's I was about to say two things that and when it transitioned to real Bill O'Neill, I was confused. I was like, right. I was like, what the fuck is Ike Turner doing here? <laughs> that nigga looked just like Ike Turner. He looked, like, he looked just like he just he just bumped into Tina Turner at the concert and threatened her with the yeah, Spider Man <laughs> meme. That's what that shit is. Yeah, what the fuck is Ike Turner doing here? So jumping back in, Daniel Kaluuya, man. When you talking about embodying Fred Hampton, he just took the number one spot from Denzel Washington speaking as Malcolm X in my book with him speaking as Fred Hampton. Those speeches captivated me. I was moved by him speaking as Fred Hampton. That's how powerful his performance was for me. I could definitely see why you say that. I could even get on board with it. Just maybe off of recency bias, since this is, I just watched this, but... um. Yeah, he he played that part so well, dude. And the way he was speaking, like, I couldn't separate him from Fred Hampton. I'll say that. To me, I looked at him like, he might F around and be like Star-Lord for me. I might <laughs> F around and start call, calling him Fred Hampton for a little while. You know, until I figure out, until I remember how to say his whole name. You know, Dan, <laughs> Kaluuya. I might just start calling him Fred Hampton. That's how good he was at that oh, part. chairman. Yeah, call him the chairman. That's <laughs> yeah. even better, son. That's the chairman right there, son. That that's it. You just did it. <laughs> that's who he is now. He's the chairman. That's hot. My man's on a regular sounds like tea and crumpets. Uh, because I, I did watch like one of the, the interview they did with him and Fred Hampton Jr. on HBO Max. I'm just like, is this a magic trick? Like, how are you doing this? You know, people can check and we know that they change how they talk all the time you know the the british black people that come over here and act but the way that he executed the fred hampton sing song way of talking you know because his, his girl tells him it's like man you're a poet and you talk like one and he kind of had that chicago stutter that fast talk but you're gonna hear everything i gotta say um, it, you know, and I, I've been in the parts and it's, it's kind of like that. I really applauded the way he did embody Fred Hampton. And I, I definitely see if we're going to be fair about anything, you know what? And it's kind of hard to really like distinguish who's the star because it's called Judas and the Black yeah. Messiah and him and Lakeith are about tit for tech and screen time, bro. Like they both deserve all the nominations. That's a good point that you just made. This is not a Fred Hampton biopic. This is a story about Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill. Right. It's a crime drama about Fred Hampton. Yeah. That makes your point about them sharing as much screen time as one another. I knew about how Fred Hampton met his end. 
being drugged, the raid at the, in the middle of the night. What I was unsure of before seeing this movie and, and doing my research after it is when was Fred Hampton shot? So to see this film and then to read that, yo, my man, all that gunfire happened and my man was only struck in the shoulder. So he was going to make it. But then the cops went in and finished him off. But the big part for me was I, I'm glad that they didn't show that, but focused it on Dominique Fishback, Deborah Johnson's character. Yeah. Like that was so powerful in that moment with Fred being assassinated, but we're seeing it filling that moment with Deborah Johnson character. It focuses in on her face. You see that she doesn't move like nothing is all still. And I think that's important because she's trying to be strong in the moment uh, because she has a little one inside of her. You see her trying to be, portray that strength. And if you just look at other points in the movie, you know, the the scene where they go in and talk to the, what's that, the, the Patriots, you know, when he goes in and they got the big Confederate flag and, you know, they're, or even when they go see the games, and you see, you don't see them just come in. It's like you see a man from the door. And to me, I was like, oh, it's like, I like how that looks. And it's, it's so many moments in the movie like that. And it's the, the final one, like you said, with her is it, it's it's a masterfully shot movie, um, in my opinion, if I want to get real cinematically nerdy about it. I, I love the way that this movie looks um, in a lot of different scenes. One last question. Do you feel any empathy for Bill O'Neill at all? A little bit. Um, just because he never intended to get into this spot. He was just, I imagine at that time, he's the same around the same age as Fred Hampton. So he was just a kid caught up, you know, in too deep, you know, and caught in a situation that he had no idea how he got himself in and no idea how to get himself out. He didn't have any idea the magnitude of what he was actually doing at the time and agreeing to get this dude taken out. He probably just thought, yeah, I'm gonna get another another knucklehead up out of here, but I'm gonna save my own ass. And as you can see in the movie, the more he starts to realize it, he's just like, oh shit. Yeah. I'm the, the. So I feel something for him. Yeah, I feel a little bit, but. Thanks a lot for saying in too deep again. <laughs> had to put that in there. <laughs> One word, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you asked me on a different day, I might say a little bit, but right now talking about it, everything that Derek said is valid. I couldn't be, I couldn't imagine being that young, being put in that position to having to do those type of things. On one hand, feel kind of bad for him, but on the other, use a hope. Okay, let's get out of here. So to rate this movie, if we love this film, we're gonna give it a image award. If we think it's good, we'll slide down the line, give it a Soul Train Award. If it's just okay, we'll hook it up with a Source Award. And if we don't like it, and I don't think anybody is going to give this award, so I don't got no little cute analogy for it this week. If we think it suck, we'll give it a BET Award. So Derek, I'll throw it to you first. What's your award for Judas and the Black Messiah? I mean, cut and dry. It's an image award. I'm going to show this movie to my kids one day, you know, so I ain't got nothing else to put on that. It definitely gets an image award. I'll probably end up watching this again 
like I said, I'm still considering like going to a theater, like and just throwing a mask on and watching it just because it, it felt very epic. And it like, I just don't feel like it did. My TV did it justice. But yeah, man, it, it, this is one hell of a movie and, and an accomplishment in itself. Just me and the Fred Hampton movie. Same for me. I'll go ahead and complete the trifecta and give this an image award and put this movie into the Madcap Hall of Fame. Excellent movie from the direction to the, the production, the performances, man. This just proves that more and more of our stories need to be out there and told with fact. And I appreciate this movie showing both sides of fact with the art that it displayed. Next up for the Madcap crew, you might as well call the month of March, the month of Eddie Murphy. The highly anticipated sequel to Coming to America, also titled Coming to America, is scheduled to be released on March the 5th on Amazon Prime Video. Prior to its release, we are going to revisit the original Coming to America. The following week, we're going to review Derek's favorite movie, Harlem Nights, starring Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Della Reese, Jasmine Guy, Arsenio Hall. The list goes on and on and on. And then the following week, on March 18th, we're going to review the sequel, Coming to America. So you know what that does? That gives you two whole weeks to see Coming to America before you listen to this podcast. You better do it. Don't come here and listen to this podcast and you haven't checked out the sequel. Because if you do and you get mad, it's not our fault. Because we plan on spoiling the entire fuck out of Coming to America. So you heard it here first. You were warned. You got two weeks to watch Coming to America before we chop it up on this highly anticipated sequel. Remember to subscribe to the show, rate and review us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. We're everywhere. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at MadCatPod. Give us a like over on our Facebook page at the Madcap Movie Review Podcast. Until next time, for my co-hosts, CL and Derek, this is Sean, and we'll be back with you next week when we revisit the original Coming to America. Peace.